a nightmare for pediatricians became a reality earlier this month. Polio, which was previously thought to be eliminated in the U.S., paralyzed an unvaccinated adult, and the virus was found in the wastewater in New York City and outlying counties. New York City, where we work, has an estimated 1.7 million children, all of whom have the opportunity to be vaccinated at a pediatrician's office given the presence of safety net hospitals where every child can seek care and vaccination, regardless of insurance or immigration status. 70 years ago, parents lined up to have their children vaccinated against a disease that each year left thousands of people disabled or unable to breathe. Today, with images of children in iron lung machines relegated to history, up to 40% of five-year-olds are not fully vaccinated against polio in some New York City neighborhoods, leaving thousands now at risk of paralysis and death. How did our country's commitment to a health intervention so exquisitely safe and life-saving slip this far to leave children vulnerable? That was Sally Permar and Jay Varma. Sally is the pediatrician-in-chief at New York Presbyterian Kamansky Children's Hospital and chair of the Department of Pediatrics at Weill Cornell Medicine. Jay is an internal medicine physician, an infectious diseases epidemiologist, a professor of population health sciences at Weill Cornell Medicine, and director of its Center for Pandemic Prevention and Response. They read from their first opinion essay, Polio in New York, a call to action for U.S. pediatricians and public health to work together. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, COO of STAT, here to discuss how medicine shortages represent an urgent public health crisis. But it's a crisis that we can fix. I'm joined by Eric Edwards, president and CEO of Flow, to discuss how the company is reimagining essential medicine production in the U.S. Thanks, Angus. When Americans visit their doctor or go to a hospital, they expect that the medicines they have to rely on each and every day will be available. Unfortunately, some of our country's most vital medications have experienced shortages that have persisted for years due to a poorly designed global supply chain. Our nation's over-reliance on foreign sources for many of our essential medicines has left the United States vulnerable and resulted in overworked and understaffed health systems. To overcome this challenge, Flow is reshoring the production of essential medicines using the power of advanced manufacturing processes right here at home. For more information on this issue, visit www.flow-usa.com. That's www.phlow-usa.com. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. Thank you both for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks for having us. Great. Thank you. You know, a few years ago, would you ever have imagined you'd be worrying about and writing about and now talking about polio in the present tense? It is a shock, and I think that's really what led us to write this article. And in particular, after fighting and being in the middle of 
uh, an emergency from a novel virus where we had to muster all of the science and the implementation strategies and the communication strategies, all of these new things that had to come together to fight a new virus, we now are faced with fighting old foes as well. Yeah, I mean, my, my challenge has always been, because I work in uh, sort of large-scale public health responses, it's, it's always been my job to worry about worst-case scenarios. Um, but even I was, not, was very surprised that, you know, polio has recurred so quickly. A few months ago, I, I tweeted something out about how you know, sometime it wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if the next three to five years uh, that polio might recur because of the rising anti-vaccine movement. Um, but as we saw that I should have been a little bit more uh, pessimistic because it was only two or three months after I sent out that tweet uh, that this case in New York City was reported. Wow. Uh, and yet here you are. For listeners who haven't been following the polio story, can you explain how this disease has sort of exploded back into public consciousness after being out of the spotlight? at least in the U.S., for almost half a century. You know, kind of in the big picture here, uh, you know, polio is a disease that uh, was officially declared eliminated in the United States in 1979. Uh, for readers who may not be, listeners who may not be familiar, the word eliminated has kind of a, a special term in public health. It doesn't mean it's gone from the face of the earth. It just means that it occurs at such an extremely low level. It's not a concern for pediatricians or, or providers of any sort. Um, but unfortunately, uh, polio has the opportunity to uh, return uh, unless you maintain very high levels of vaccination. And several factors have combined together. Uh, one of those is a rising anti-vaccine movement. Uh, just as social media has enabled disinformation in, in the political sphere, it's also, you know, fueled uh, disinformation in the vaccine sphere. Um, and then, of course, that's combined with the COVID-19 epidemic, uh, where people opposed to COVID vaccinations have also been often convinced to sort of oppose all vaccinations together. So, so that's one piece of this. And so what you ended up in, in New York was, uh, pockets of, of the state in which there's very low rates of vaccination among children and even among some adolescents and adults. The second thing you have is a change in the virus. You know, there's been an attempt to uh, really eradicate, and by eradicate, I mean completely eliminate polio from the face of the earth. Uh, but because one of the vaccines, uh, the oral polio vaccine, has the potential to mutate um, back into kind of the wild type or the dangerous form of the virus, anytime you have international travel or international connections, you have the possibility of reintroducing either the wild strain or this vaccine-derived strain back into the United States. And then in an under-vaccinated population, uh, that's a really dangerous situation. And then maybe I can add that um, while we think of routine vaccinations as routine, um, as the uh, growing anti-vaccine movement, as well as just missed opportunities throughout the pandemic with uh, your regular uh, pediatric appointments, canceled, put off for months, that there are a um, growing number of children that are not up to date with their vaccine. And when you look at the numbers that some areas of New York City, even with um, less than 70% vaccination rate, it, it starts to question what, it, what is the safety net here for ensuring that we have high enough vaccination rate to not allow these viruses that we've previously gotten rid of from uh, our uh, what we think about each day are coming back. You know, if you could take a guess, what do you think polio vaccination rates were 15 years ago or 20 years ago? How, how high were they? 
Well, in the United States, sort of nationally, the U.S. has done an incredible job of this. And, you know, one of the interesting aspects of uh, the U.S. is even though, you know, the U.S. fails when you look at global comparisons for a lot of health indicators, um, you know, like looking at mortality compared to per capita health spending, when it comes to vaccination, the U.S. has really been a world leader when it comes to high levels of vaccination in children. And, and we often measure that at the age of two and at the age of under five and saying, you know, are all kids up to date on the vaccines that they receive? The U.S. has always had very strong measures to require childhood vaccinations as a criteria for entry into public schools um, and often as a criteria to enter things like daycare or after school sports activities or summer camps. While I don't know the exact rate across the board in the United States, I suspect that, you know, for, you know, for the past 15 years, it's been consistently above 85 percent and, and I think over above 95 percent in, in many parts of New York. Yeah, and really it's thanks to the work of pediatricians that keeps that um, that vaccine rate very high. Um, it's built into every visit for every child to review vaccines. Um, it's, it's considered the standard of care. It's not an option. It's presented as it's time for your vaccine. And um, But really the public health system then relies on uh, pediatricians as the front line for maintaining that high vaccine rate. And the question is, are we really supporting that group enough to maintain high enough rate to keep out things like polio? You know, I was entering school age when mass polio vaccination campaigns were underway in the U.S. in the 1950s. I can vaguely recall being somewhere in our neighborhood with my mom and my younger brother, Joe, and seeing the little cups of vaccine-laced sugar cubes. The, that's the Sabin vaccine, I think. And I knew classmates who had lingering effects of polio. But thanks to the mass vaccination campaigns, I, Jay, you said there have been at most a handful of polio cases recorded in the U.S. since 1979. So a pediatrician or other doctor would have to be on the older side to have ever seen a case of polio. Have you, either of you ever seen somebody newly diagnosed with polio? I have not. In, in my training in pediatrics, it, it wasn't a case that I saw presented. Yeah, in my clinical training, which is here in the United States, no, you know, I have worked on uh, polio issues globally, but never in clinical practice. And and that's, I think, as Sally has noted, <laughs> who's a, you know, an incredibly prominent pediatrician. Uh, if she hasn't seen it, then it's pretty unlikely a lot of doctors in the United States have. So might younger doctors miss it or misdiagnose it or think it's something else? Oh, for sure. And, and in fact, um, the physicians who are actually in our health system, New York Presbyterian, um, that diagnosed the, the single case in New York City um, were really quite astute to um, test for polio because, um, you know, the, the presentation was something that they certainly had not been exposed to before because often it's doctors in training who are the first to see a patient. And then, uh, then those uh, physicians who may remember, um, you know, the days of polio may uh, get in later. But um, uh, so it's really quite um, uh, important that they did recognize that and then um, to think of that, you know, there are other uh, viral-related syndromes that that could uh, be similar to how polio presents um, other uh, um, enteric viruses, like one called enterovirus D68 is one that um, pediatricians often worry about, uh, new outbreaks of that virus causing um, weakness in patients. So it is something that... Um, that uh, we now have to put back into our lexicon uh, to remember when you see a case of paralysis or even 
even meningitis, even more common things that can be caused by polio because it's uh, those uh, few cases that end up in paralysis. There's much more circulation before that. Yeah, I mean, I guess one of the other things important for your listeners to understand, of course, is that uh, while paralysis is the most is one of the most feared, I mean, death being the most feared complication of polio, you know, the vast majority of of kids who get infected with polio um, don't have any symptoms at all or have very mild symptoms uh, like those that might just come from a stomach illness. So it's very unlikely that those mild and asymptomatic cases will ever be picked up. And, and so globally, you know, the standard for detecting and tracking disease, what we call surveillance, is to look for cases of paralysis and then to test them for polio, as, as uh, Dr. Permar just discussed. Um, so one of the challenges here, of course, is, is are there these milder forms of polio, either stomach illnesses or even what's called aseptic meningitis, which is basically symptoms of meningitis without any demonstration of a bacteria. You know, are there cases of that occurring in New York City? And, and we don't know the answer to that right now, but I, that's one of the fears that I have is that um, if we don't test a little more widely, we may not actually understand how many people may be getting infected, even though they're not getting the worst complications of this disease. So even though somebody can be infected, they can, as you said, have no symptoms. That's reminiscent of COVID-19. And I think that was maybe the first time that a lot of people understood the magnitude of asymptomatic infection. And so that means those asymptomatic children or adults could be spreading it elsewhere. It's true. However, the one great thing that vaccines has given us is you're really only at risk of picking it up from one of those children who may be spreading it um, and having uh, the most severe symptoms if you're unvaccinated. So while uh, we spent a long time with the COVID-19 pandemic uh, without an available vaccine, in this case, we know how to put someone uh, not at risk for polio. You had a great line in your, well, you had a, many great lines in your essay, but one of the ones I liked was that pediatricians' offices are, I'm quoting, the critical site for turning vaccines into vaccinations. Why is that? Sally, I think you already started down that road earlier. Yeah, so studies have continued to show that parents and caregivers want to get their information from pediatricians. Pediatricians are a um, trusted source, and uh, people are used to getting information about vaccines, having vaccines recommended to them, being administered vaccines. The um, nurses and other providers who work in those offices get really good at distracting children while vaccinating them. <laughs> so uh, uh, they don't even notice it happened. Um, and, and so uh, parents are used to that. Um, and it is the system that is relied on. And, and actually, we always say that, uh, you know, our adult colleagues actually have a harder time uh, reaching high vaccine rates because they don't have that system built into their care, uh, like pediatrics does, um, of making sure that the vaccines are front and center to every visit and are not missed uh, when, when you have a, a patient there in the office in front of you. In your essay, you make the case that pretty much system-level changes are needed to strengthen pediatricians' vaccine delivery. What kind of system-level interventions or changes are you thinking about? Yeah, well, we're asking a lot of our pediatricians right now. Um, not only have they had to make 
massive changes in how they uh, deliver care, how uh, their their patient flow with with COVID-19. They've also uh, had a lot of staffing shortages that we've dealt with across the board. Um, And now uh, we're asking them to address a growing problem, which is the vaccine hesitancy and misinformation, without really adding more to how much they're being reimbursed for their services or the support that's coming from uh, government entities or public health networks. And um, so in the middle of pediatricians being asked to work harder on the uh, COVID-19 uh, vaccine administration, the same time the flu vaccines are coming out and coming due, um, and now we're saying you, you can't go below uh, even, uh, you know, a couple percent of your children in your practice being unvaccinated for routine things like polio um, without leaving uh, the community at risk, really, for, for spreading um, viruses that we have vaccines for. So we've really added on uh, many things that uh, are, are, we're uh, relying on our pediatricians' offices for um, without really adding a lot of additional support from um places like government entities or our uh, quality control networks that could really um, support them in how they uh, administer high-level vaccine rates to their whole populations. Yeah, one of the other um, components of this entire system is the role of state and local health departments. Uh, One of the ways that um, state and local health departments can support pediatricians and other primary care providers um, is to use data that they have to help um, guide uh, you know, what patients and families should be called back and maybe even what communities should be targeted for more aggressive, you know, vaccine education and outreach. And what I mean by that very concretely is that, you know, every state in the United States has a immunization registry. And basically what that is, it's an electronic database of all the vaccines that have been given to children. And with the proper funding, health departments can query that data, um, provide it to pediatricians' offices, and basically say, well, here's a list of all the you know families that have under-vaccinated children, and you can call them back. And also with the right funding can help to support those phone calls and, and outreach efforts. Uh, you know, we in New York City have done that in previous times when I was working as a, as a public health government official um, to respond to measles and mumps outbreaks and a number of other things. But our state and local health departments are really beleaguered right now. You know, they're understaffed, underfunded. Many people are exhausted uh, from the experience of COVID. So there really needs to be a sort of federal government initiatives to help support this. Um, otherwise, both our frontline pediatricians as well as our state and local health departments won't be able to do the hard work that's needed to, to get our vaccination levels to the way they need to be. So it sounds like you're describing a full circle loop from pediatrician office to state database back to pediatricians, which, you know, there are so many systems we have that just go one way. Um, So this kind of full circle sounds like it would be extremely helpful to pediatricians. Yeah. You know, public health in our country works, public health everywhere, I'll just say this globally, works well when there's kind of a seamless connection between the people overseeing the overall health of a population, which is health departments, the people delivering the care to patients, which is pediatricians, and then the communities, that is the people who need to have the information they need to understand why this is so important to themselves and to the health of their other you know, friends and neighbors. In um, my experience in leading the operations of a couple of pediatrics office through my current role uh, here at Weill Cornell, 
I've, I've come to understand how hard it is to add on one more operational task to an already very uh, operationally strapped um, uh, operation where uh, they, you know, just to get the flu vaccine rolled out every year becomes a challenge in that if we ask the staff that's already there, that's you know, weighing the children, getting them in the room, making sure that all of the uh, discharge communications are there. Um, then you say, can you also uh, ask about their flu shot, find out if they've had their flu shot, administer the flu shot? It can break the system. And so I'm now a lot more sympathetic to asking for one more um, a piece on top of the, the very uh, uh, fragile web of what goes on every day at our clinics. And so the addition of um, staff resources, um, information resources would go a long way. But aren't children really compliant patient patients? Well, it's not just the child who's <laughs> in the room. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's why pedi- I'll, I'll step in as the adult medicine doctor. That's why adult medicine is a lot easier. We only have one patient, the patient in front of us. You know, Sally has the parents and the children. You know, that brings up a question. Do, do parents sometimes try to cherry pick what vaccine, you know, you recommend a whole panel of vaccines and the parent is saying, well, yes for this and no for that? I think one of the the challenges is that uh, many people don't understand um, that our immune system, and I'm going to you know give a high level discussion here, but Sally's the real expert on this. Uh, you know, many people don't understand that our immune system, such as the immune system of children, is designed to be exposed to you know different things in our environment and prime itself for immunity. And the reason vaccines are so good is it's kind of like training wheels when riding a bike. You know, when you're trying to teach somebody to ride a bike, you don't just stick them on the bike and push them uh, when they're a little kid. You give them training wheels. You basically make it safer. So the vaccine is kind of a safe way of being exposed to these type of organisms that children will encounter both in childhood as well as the rest of their lives. And and I think that's where this challenge comes. I think a lot of you know parents feel that, oh my gosh, you're exposing my children to so many things at the same time. Why are you doing that? Can't we just space them out? Um, and I think it's a real communications challenge trying to, to convince parents that, well, actually your child is being exposed to so many things on an ongoing basis, literally even while sitting there in the exam room. Um, <laughs> that, you know, that, that what they're getting is actually incredibly safe. So I don't know, Sal, if you wanted to, to fill in because this is your area of expertise. Yeah, well, just to say there there is no such thing of, as overwhelming the immune system because like Jay said, your immune system is set up, especially in childhood, to respond to many things so that it carries that memory, that immune memory throughout life. And yeah, if you just think of the number of bacteria in our guts uh, that that our immune systems are supposed to be exposed to all the time um, can get an idea of you know how our immune system uh, these vaccines are just one of the many things that your immune system is responding to, especially in those first few years of life. You know the 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 fixes. I'm, I know they're not fixes, but the the potential solutions for supporting pediatricians sound great, but they also sound like they cost cash. Um, but you make a really good point about the cost of not doing it. That's true. You know, um, to even hear about one case of polio is um, s- such a letdown to think that we have a very cost-effective strategy to eliminate uh, this serious disease that that causes a lifelong disabilities and and even death. 
um, through a very um, low-cost intervention. And that the cost of not uh, administering that low-cost intervention in the uh, uh, most uh, accessible way possible um, is more than um, we should be having to deal with. And um, so it is uh, a reminder that um, you can't keep your eye off the ball. And I think that's one thing our recommendations uh, bring to light is while we've been focused on getting that new COVID vaccine out to as many people as possible, um, making sure the seasonal flu vaccines are out to as many people as possible, we can't take our eye off the ball on the routine vaccines or these old uh, viruses will come back to haunt us. I think one of the the biggest weaknesses of, of public health, both, both here in the U.S. as well as globally, is you know, our inability to convince the people that make budgets, so it's legislators, executives, that public health spending is an investment. It's not a cost. You know, we're investing just like we invest in our school systems, um, like you invest in security, because the way we all thrive in society is by protecting our health. And, you know, we can't do our jobs. Our kids can't learn if they're not healthy. And so, you know, we need to, in public health, you know, make a much better, stronger case for that. Um, and I think vaccinations is, is really the most perfect example of that. Jay, you mentioned earlier that in addition to the work that pediatricians do, certain laws or requirements, like requirements for vaccination before going to school, are an important part of this effort. Are there are there schools or groups where those are waived or you know, not enforced? Yeah, unfortunately, just like vaccines don't turn themselves into vaccinations, uh, laws don't turn themselves, don't enforce themselves, right? <laughs> so, so even though there are, you know, pretty strict regulations across the United States and particularly in New York about what a uh, preschool is required to, you know, in terms of vaccine requirements, what a uh, public or private or religious school is required to do, it also requires somebody going to those schools and making sure that it's actually being enforced. And I know this as a as a public health official where I used to oversee all of the infectious disease programs for the city, including our, you know, one of the large the largest immunization program in the country is there are many schools in which, you know, the principals and the registration officials don't want to fight with parents. Right. Um, and so and it's very difficult for, uh, you know, them to have to, to fight with these parents about who don't want to get their kids vaccinated and then to enforce it. Um, and so you need to have a public health system that's funded to go out and be monitoring that. Well, if your public health officials are fighting monkeypox and covid and and other diseases, they simply just don't have the staff to go to every school and, and audit them. So so that's really what it comes down to. On, at a baseline, you need to have strong laws in place. But you also need to be able to fund public health officials and school systems to be able to actually enforce these laws as well. I mean, I would imagine as a principal, you're probably thinking, oh, man, I've got to do this, too. Um, in addition to, you know, work with all the children and the teachers and the facilities, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it must be an ad added burden for for um, for principals as well, school superintendents. Uh, absolutely. And, and this is why actually the I, I would also point out the fact that this is actually why the laws are actually so important. Um, you know, when it comes to public health, when you when you set a baseline uh, for everybody and you and you don't exempt, you know, private schools or religious schools and you make it required for everybody, it actually ultimately makes it easier for the principal or the school official to say, look, 
I'm just following the rules here. Don't argue with me. Um, but that is the challenge that you run into, of course, if, if they're not going to be uh, regulated closely by somebody else, making sure they follow the laws, um, then it is going to be more challenging for the for the principal because they're in the business of educating children, right? They're not in the business of of monitoring and, and maintaining the health of those kids. And so so they need assistance as well, too. You know, you wrote your essay at the end of August. We're now a couple of weeks into September. Has has polio spread beyond New York State? Well, this is something that I actually haven't seen any public communication about. I mean, I am quite concerned that it's it's not as if um, you know, the US has has walls around all its states, right? People move in and around communities all the time. And so anything that's here in in New York is likely to also be in neighboring states and potentially to be in other places around the country too as well. Um, so I know CDC is trying to ramp up uh, testing of things like wastewater, which it had you know essentially abandoned for polio after polio was eliminated. Um, but it's now going to have to be uh, returned. And, and so I'm hopeful to see more information about this. I, I'm quite worried, in fact. Um, I'm a bit worried that the sort of national response and attention to this um, is not at the level that it needs to be, because it's not just places in New York where you have these under-vaccinated pockets. You have them everywhere in the U.S. Uh, I remember when the first COVID case was detected in Washington state and everybody figured, eh, Washington state, um, look what happened. Yeah, I, I think that um, if you're not looking, you don't see it necessarily, because, again, there um, are thousands of cases uh, before you might see one um, symptomatic case or uh, a, a paralysis case. And uh, and if if you have uh, only these pockets where you have under vaccinated populations um, that that may be more at risk, but the um, community around them that's uh, seeing them as providers may not be looking out for it because, like we say, they haven't had to think about that in the last few years. So it does feel like a um, almost a failure, really, of um, our public health system to put us in a position where we're thinking about polio again and something that we can imagine if the uh, support from our public health network, if the laws had uh, been enforced more strongly, we might not be in this position. Well, let me let me close by opening the lens just a little bit. We've been talking about polio here in the U.S. The World Health Organization says that the number of yearly polio cases has decreased by 99.9% since the start of the Global Polio Eradication Initiative in 1988. Jay, I think this might be in your bailiwick. Is that something that's holding or is polio making a comeback elsewhere? Yeah, you know, the elimination of polio has been one of the biggest public health challenges that um, that the world has faced. Um, you know, after the eradication, that is the complete, you know, Eliminate destruction of smallpox anywhere all all over the world. The next step was to try to eliminate polio, but it's so difficult to really get that last mile. And you know, over the past fifteen years, a lot of the effort has been focused on trying to get uh, you know communities, particularly in in places like Nigeria and in Pakistan and Afghanistan, which are remote and have misinformation, to try to get people vaccinated there. But this second problem that's emerged during that time, and this relates to New York is the emergence of these vaccine-derived strains of polio. That is, by using the oral polio vaccine, uh, having it mutate and then sort of come back and be dangerous again. 
And that has now caused recurrent outbreaks through many parts of the world, particularly in Africa. And that is, in fact, the strain um, here in New York, which is tied to a strain that's now been found in London and a strain that's also been found in Israel as well. So it's just a reminder, again, that we are an interconnected world. We can't view the health of Americans as separate from the health of people everywhere else around the world. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if we are going to have to see the implementation of a novel vaccine um, to close this gap with polio. And, and there have been some efforts, a lot of it funded by the Gates Foundation, to develop um, uh, improved vaccine in particular for the polio strain that is circulating related to the oral polio vaccine. So there's still some innovation in vaccinology that may have to come to bear to really um, eradicate polio in the end. So that may be the topic of your next essay for us. Sally and Jay, many thanks for taking the time to talk with me today about the reemergence of polio in the U.S. and what's needed to head it off. I hope our country is in the early stage of this and the two of you do not end up on the front lines of caring for kids infected with polio. Thank you very much. Appreciate your interest and time. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is the executive producer. I love to hear from listeners. Please let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, Please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well as we continue to navigate the realities of COVID and the whitewater ahead. Mm-hmm.